Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. And a hearty welcome to um, Professor Robert Hockett, who, who is a uh, law professor at Cornell, if I'm not mistaken. And that's right. And uh, an advisor to um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez in the uh, construction of the uh, Green New Deal uh, proposal, which is which is recently put up before Congress. So uh, th- thanks for stopping by to talk to us. Well, thanks so much, guys, for having having me on. It's a real honor for me. Uh, Very excited, Robert. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Ryan. Um. Yeah. If we, I mean, if we wanted to get started, I thought that uh, you know. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you sort of came to be um, uh, ad- advising AOC in this in this area. It's sort of like your your how your general interest got kindled in the in the sure. topic. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, there's sort of this is sort of a kind of a in a way it's hard not to think of it as a kind of a strangely divine sort of convergence of uh, of sort of trajectories. So um, on the one hand, I've been doing a good bit of work for uh, progressive Congress members for quite some time now. Um, so I helped draft uh, Senator Warren's uh, Green New Deal. I'm sorry, Green New. Whoops, that Freudian slip. There, uh, Accountable Capitalism <laughs> Act uh, this past August, uh, and before that, uh, in July, I had helped with her uh, Territorial uh, Relief Act, and then. Uh, this autumn, I helped Senator Sanders with a couple of bills, um, the Too Big to Fail, Too Big to Exist Act uh, of October uh, and the Stop Walmart Act uh, of November. Uh, I've been uh, working with some of Senator Gillibrand's people on employee ownership of late and done you know, other work for other Congress members in, at previous times, including Senator Brown, um, Representative Higgins and others. So I think part of what, you know, sort of maybe brought me to the attention uh, of AOC's extraordinary team might have been that I'm sort of on record as somebody who helps out with that kind of stuff. Um, another thing that that helped was that I was part of Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign team back in 2016. Hmm. Uh, I was this sort of finance regulation guy and uh, was a regular spokesperson for the Sanders campaign on tax policy and, uh, and again, finance regulatory policy. Um, and the congresswoman was also, of course, part of uh, Bernie's uh, team. So we had been sort of on the same team for a while. Uh, turns out also that her chief of staff's uh, spouse was a student of mine uh, not too terribly long ago uh, over at, at, at Cornell. Um, and then a lot of the work that I do, um, both in a kind of policy advocacy vein uh, and in an academic vein, uh, sort of falls pretty squarely within the uh, agenda or the uh, the sort of uh, portfolio of a number of think tanks as well that have been associated with the Congresswoman, uh, including uh, most notably of late, uh, New Consensus. So in a sense, it all kind of came together again in this, in this rather remarkably you know, sort of providential seeming way. Um, particularly given, you know, what a huge fan I was of, of the congresswoman when she was still simply a, a candidate. I was, of course, very enthused, as, as so many New Yorkers and Americans more broadly uh, were. Uh, so it was just an absolute and utter thrill when they reached out to me and, uh, and asked if I could help out with this. My sort of areas of specialty over at the university, over at Cornell, are, are in law and finance, but also in public finance within, you know, under that sort of broader heading of finance. And I've done quite a bit of work uh, in the realm of uh, infrastructure and infrastructure finance uh, in the past, 
going back to 2010, 2011, and indeed even uh, helped draft legislation for uh, Representative Brian Higgins from out in the western end of the state uh, over in Buffalo, uh, an act that got some attention for a while. Uh, it was called the Nation Building Here at Home Act, which, as its name suggests, was all about rebuilding America instead of spending all of these trillions uh, rebuilding uh, Afghanistan and other mm. countries in the world that we were sort of tearing down in the first place before rebuilding. So, um, so again, it, it just it kind of felt quite like a, a natural um, to me as soon as the congresswoman began talking about a Green New Deal, even when a candidate. Um, and I guess I must have looked like something of a natural uh, to help out uh, with with their work as well. Cool, wonderful, fortuitous indeed. Yeah. Mm, um, yeah, yeah, it just felt like a match made in heaven, and it just sort of, you know, it was one of those things that if it hadn't happened, I would have been thinking this should happen. Um, and <laughs> it just it happened really, really quickly before I had to even to do anything about it, really. So, um, so it's just been to me that's been in a way kind of further confirmation that uh, something really good is happening, um, and that a number of distinct, not only distinct people but distinct movements have all been sort of on the right track all of us kind of moving uh, sort of in the same direction toward a common uh, destination point. And I suppose you could say that here we are, you know, we're at that destination point now all joining forces and working together on this truly exciting and I think um, potentially quite transformative uh, movement or initiative, which really is, the, I think, the biggest thing to happen for at least the last 50 years in this country, if not the last 70 or 80 years. Absolutely. I, and, you know, we've, we've talked on the show a lot about Machiavelli, and I really think this is a case where you have a lot of talented um, politicians with virtu, right, with, with true skill and, and excellence. Um, mm-hmm. But it seems that we, we have Lady Fortuna on our side as well. So mm-hmm. the, 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 the timing and the, and the coupling of, of the talented people such as yourself and, and, and these wonderful uh, new leftists on the rise uh, is providing a chance to address some, some dire um, dire economic and, and climate issues. So, uh, so thank you. Thank you for doing that. Of course. Thanks so much again for, for bringing me on to talk about it. It's really a joy to, to be able to talk sort of at length and at leisure, uh, about the, you know, sort of the full scope and the full ambition of the plan rather than, you know, being restricted just to sort of quick sound bites here and there. Right. Certainly. And I know that, that Ryan has, uh, the wonk that he is, I'm sure, has plenty of questions in that regard, right, Ryan? <laughs> I mean, you know, let's not overstate uh, my my credentials, but um, he's also he's also very humble. He's also I, a very humble man. I do. That's the best kind of brilliant. I I don't Indeed. I don't have any uh, advanced degrees, but I do have a question. Um, uh-huh. uh, just so you know, maybe to start, kind of start digging in a little bit. Um, uh-huh. You know, there sure. there's been there there's you know, confronting the issue of climate change, you know, there's a sort of like the, the, the surface level, you know, like, like the most proximate, you know, aspect of the problem is greenhouse gas emissions. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, a a line of criticism from centrists, I know Jonathan Tate has taken this line, a friend of the pod, Mm -hmm. um, that (laughs) the green new deal is introducing like, basically irrelevant distractions by saying like here's some stuff that isn't like directly related to climate change and um instead of just like focusing mechanically on how do we you know decarbonize transportation how do we decarbonize agriculture and industry and you know cement production or whatever and so like what 
in in your view, what is the necessity of of having this sort of like broader egalitarian vision aside from just like narrowly focused on greenhouse gases? Sure. So uh, sort of two part answer. I mean, the first thing to say is that, um, you know, Jonathan Chait is welcome to continue <laughs> pushing on exactly the front that he wants to push on. Right. There's there's absolutely nothing excluded when it comes to. Uh, more traditional, say, environmental policy solutions or, or, or proposals uh, by what we're doing. Uh, in a sense, one way to view what we're doing is as, you know, sort of roping in all prior efforts, but then expanding enormously on them by widening the portfolio of, of, of fronts along weekend push. Um, so it's, it's, it's sort of a big tent approach. And I don't think that in that sense, it's distracting in any sense, because as long as all of the people who want to push on precisely what Jonathan Chait wants to push on want to continue thus pushing, they can certainly do so under the broad tent of the, of the Green New Deal. Um, <laughs> second point worth noting in this connection, so I guess I actually have three points. <laughs> uh, the second point maybe worth noting in this connection is that like the original New Deal, uh, the Green New Deal is meant to unfold over the course of a decade. And it's meant to be a very broadly deliberative process sort of initiative, right? So one way to think about the New Deal itself was it was a grand national deliberation that took place over a 10 to 12 year period. It was highly improvisational and experimental. The idea was to try all sorts of things that looked like they might work. Um, things that then proved not to work were very quickly discarded and things that proved to work were very quickly scaled up. Uh, and the sort of formal expression that the original New Deal found um, as these experiments were conducted and as some failed and others succeeded was the form of a sequence of transformative statutes, many, many, many statutes. Indeed, if you visit the FDR Museum uh, over at Hyde Park, it's truly a remarkable thing because what you'll see, it's remarkable in a lot of ways, but one of the things you'll see immediately is all of the campaign posters um, from all of the presidential campaigns that Mr. Roosevelt ran, starting, of course, in 32, but then again in 36, then again in 40, and then again in 44. And each year that he ran for president and campaigned, the campaign posters basically touted the uh, successes or the achievements of the previous term. And basically what that means is that basically every four years, you see all these posters with these lengthy enumerations of statutes that have been enacted. And most of these things are still with us to this very day. I mean, that's just how important and enduring they were. But what you come away from when you look at all of these these posters is you, you, you realize, my God, you know, um, over a 13-year period, which could, would have been 16 if Mr. Roosevelt hadn't hadn't died comparatively youngish of congestive heart failure in 45, was that the New Deal was an ongoing development, this kind of wonderful sort of unfolding transformation of the country into something infinitely better than what it had been going into the New Deal. And we view the Green New Deal in the same way, right? It's a broad national deliberation it's going to be conducted in uh, with a sort of experimental or very sort of scientific and pragmatic uh, sort of attitude with a, this view that, well, things that work, we're going to scale up. Things that don't work, again, we'll discard. And we want literally to hear from everybody. We want everybody to be part of this process, including Jonathan Jay and all other, <laughs> all other critics, right? 
And we furthermore want literally everybody to benefit. Now that sounds audacious, but we really do. We want literally everybody to benefit. That was another aspect of the New Deal that people, I think, either maybe never knew or have forgotten after having once known. But that is that the New Deal had projects going in literally every single congressional district of the country. There wasn't a single district, Republican or Democrat or anything else, that didn't have New Deal projects underway in them. Now, that wasn't only smart politics, which, of course, it was because, of course, Congress members tend to like stuff if it's doing good work for their district. But it was also something more noble than merely smart politics. It was democracy and it was justice, right? Literally every American was benefiting by this wonderful sort of, again, transformative national project, this grand national mobilization. Everybody, literally everybody was to benefit from it and everybody was to contribute to it. Their ideas, their thoughts, their muscle, you name it. We want the Green New Deal to be exactly like that, except even better, because as we all know, one fault of the original New Deal, owing to compromises that President Roosevelt had to make with some of the Southern faction in his Democratic Party back in Mm -hmm. those days, was that there was a lot of the racism of American society more generally, and a lot of the sexism of American society more generally, found its way into the New Deal as well, because the New Deal was as reflective of American society as it then stood, as it was transformative of American society, as it was later to become. Now we have, of course, transformed along those particular dimensions. We're no longer as racist a country as we were in the 1930s and 40s, although you know certain people in the White House right now might make you think differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're no longer, by any stretch, as sexist a country as we were in the 30s and 40s. And so a Green New Deal is, of course, going to be much more inclusive and more just, even than the original New Deal uh, was. Um, finally, the third point uh, to make about this is, uh, you know, we, we actually think that a problem with environmental policy and the environmental movement in the past was precisely the fact that it tended either to be narrow or to be kind of small scale, humble, or both, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with humility as such or with, you know, taking baby steps before you take grand or giant leaps as such. But the point here is that we actually have tried to take those little baby steps. We have tried little incremental solutions or incremental suggestions. And it turns out that American society only acts in a big way if we actually push for big change and if we try to be as you know, as big and as ambitious uh, as as possible. That we, basically, again, we think that at this point, the climate problem is so urgent, especially in the wake of the recent NASA report, that we've only got ten to twelve years left before we reach an actual tipping point where things can't be reversed, and that does require a massive and very rapid mobilization of the kind that we commenced uh, in the early 30s and 33 uh, to respond to the crash of 29 and the depression that was underway when Roosevelt took office, and of course to respond to the attack on Pearl Harbor in late 1941, a massive mobilization uh, is required. Oh, and finally, one additional point, sorry, so I guess I had four points, not two. The other thing is that, you know, the nation is in profound need of a deep reconstruction in any event. This has been the case since 2008-2009. We never have fully recovered economically. Sure, the, so the reported unemployment numbers are down lower than they were in 2009, 
But that's a nonsense statistic to look at, first of all, because it doesn't count people who gave up looking for work after so long looking and not finding. In other words, it ignores the, the more, much more salient statistic, which is the labor force participation rate. It also ignores the fact that none of the jobs that have been brought back since 2008, 2009, is a high-paying, living-wage sort of job. These are burger-flipping jobs. Indeed, in many cases, you'll meet people who have two or three of these jobs. <laughs> That's the kind of jobs they are. Right. The nation's right. infrastructure, meanwhile, has con continue to crumble. As you know, the American Society of Civil Engineers has said we have to spend somewhere between 2 and $3 trillion just to get our infrastructure itself back to where it was functionality-wise back in 2007 or 2008. And the thing is, if we're going to revitalize infrastructure now in a state-of-the-art way, that just is to make it green because these are the cutting-edge newest technologies. The green infrastructure and the green industrial methods and the green energy methods or power sources are themselves the state-of-the-art. So if we're going to revamp, presumably we want to revamp to the state of the art, not to the state of the caveman. And if we're going to revamp to the state of the art, that just is to go green. So if you're really going to be serious about rebuilding the country and rebuilding the economy and bringing back manufacturing to this country, as Donald Trump promised to do but has not done, and if you're really going to make America a first-class country again where infrastructure is concerned and where industry is concerned and where its economy is concerned and its jobs and the prosperity of its population are concerned, the only way to do that is to do it as modernly as possible and to do it as modernly as possible is to do it as green as possible. And one <laughs> final point, if I'm sorry, a fifth point, is, I, I promise this really is the last one for this iteration. Um, all of these cutting edge technologies, it seems to me, it bears noting, are things that we invented. America invented all this stuff and we used to dominate in these fields. What's happened since, of course, is that all of this stuff has moved over to China because American government has not been, I mean, our government in the hands of Republicans has not been hospitable to it. It's moved over to China, uh, to some extent over to Germany as well, of course, and to some extent over to India. And at this point, by far the largest producer, the largest consumer, and the largest exporter of green technologies is China. That used to be us. That should have been us. That can be us. I'm not saying that, therefore, we should think of ourselves as in some sort of a zero-sum competition with China for, you know, domination of green energy. <laughs> it's fine if we're both big on it, right? But the point is we should not be, like, you know, 30 or 40 years behind. We should not be in the Stone Age while China is in the sort of advanced green age. At the very least, we should be right up there with China. And I would actually, you know, if I were a betting person, I would actually bet on America to be number one again in this if we were actually to get serious about it because we are so inventive and because we are so good at this when we actually mobilize ourselves around it. Beautiful. That's wonderful. Oh, thanks. I, thanks. I, I have a lot of lovely uh, thoughts in my mind coming from that. The, the first is, is that... You know, when when you hear people saying, oh, there, where are the details, you know, and, and the focus that Chate say has on this one particular thing, that's because the actual ideologues in all of this are the neoliberals and the centrists, because they don't understand the need for vision and the need, as you say, for the demos, for, for the democratic process to bring about that vision and actualize it. And so what you're talking about is in a crisis like this, one, we have the resources, but we need a commitment in principle to a vision that will actually move us toward 
doing these great things. And the way that we do it has to be democratized. So we can't top down tell everyone how it's going to be in the specifics because that would be to avoid this fundamental point, which is to have everyone involved, committed, and understanding the urgency and the necessity to do it together. And that makes, as, as Roosevelt did, that also makes flexibility, right? And, and, trial and error and all these these pragmatic uh approaches things that are crucial but but that for that same point won't be ironed out ahead of time right and so i think that's I think exactly that's right yeah yeah to be to be to be properly pragmatic about this i think you have to be organic about this it has to grow and develop with continual input continual revision in the light of failed experiments and in the light of new ideas that are brought forth by members of the demos so to be a properly sort of pragmatic new deal that unfolds over a 10 year period it has to be an organically developing process furthermore you know given the type of people who are complaining about this especially republicans it's kind of telling that they complain on this ground right because it presupposes a kind of dictatorial top down approach if you're thinking dictatorially and top down then of course you're going to say well where's the blueprint so that we know what to impose <laughs> on everybody right but if the whole point here is we want to get the nation commenced talking about thinking about brainstorming about sharing ideas about and then ultimately together pushing this forward then of course we don't present them with a blueprint and say okay here's the five-year plan comply or die or comply or go to the gulag which right. is what republicans <laughs> seem to want us to do um, right. rather we say all right y'all let's get started here let's get this party started what do you guys think what should we do let's get moving um you know here and that's what the, the resolution does the resolution i keep analogizing it to a, the first pounding of the gavel like the opening gavel in a great big legislative session. We've pounded the gavel with the resolution, which is intentionally brief and broad brush, but nevertheless, very specific about basic goals to be accomplished. And in that sense, we've just basically started the legislative session for the demos in effect. That's right. And now it's time for that to get underway. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. One thing that, that makes me think of, and, and, uh, and Ryan, I'll give you, you know, I, I'm always quick on the draw, so I, I don't give Ryan time to, <laughs> time to jump in with his questions. But after, after this, I'll step back a second. Um, but no, I, you know, here's an interesting uh, question, I, I, I would think. There are ways in which the demos also needs to be guided um, in terms of so let's say the chates of the world fixate on on, on these technocratic things. Um, what what would you say? You know, right? Socrates in the Republic talks about different kinds of goods: those that are good in themselves, those that are just instrumental, and those that are both. For for like the Green New Deal, are there things where you'd want to tell the demos? You know what? There's lots of things that are instrumental. You could do it this way. You could do it that way. Certain certain policy specifics are not just instrumental, but seem like principled ends in themselves as well. I don't know if the job guarantee would be such a thing or do you, does anything come to mind where you'd want to say, look, there's lots of things we could do differently, but this I think is, is a principle that you, you, we want to embrace as the, as the left. Yeah. So that is a, a truly beautiful question. Uh, and I'm so grateful for it. And I can, I can, I could give you a really long answer and I'll, I'll try to keep it halfway brief. So let's put it this way. Um, what we want to do is we want the sort of instrumental goals that we set for ourselves. We want as many of the instrumental goals that we set for ourselves to be intrinsically good too, as we possibly mm. can. Right. Mm. So, you know, if things are instrumentally good to pursue and to do, we want to do them. But let's say for any given policy objective, you've got on the one hand, a method of approaching it that is instrumentally good in the sense that it will achieve the objective. 
And then at the same time, another goal or way of achieving it that would be, again, instrumentally helpful because it would get us there, but would also be sort of intrinsically good in its own right or in its own self in that kind of Socratic or Aristotelian sense. I think in general, our instincts always go for the latter kind, right? Something that is both instrumentally good and uh, uh, intrinsically good, to use again the Socratic lingo here. So a couple of examples, right? The first is if you think about the process itself that we were just talking about, right? The idea of it's being a deliberative and democratic process, a kind of participatory democratic process. Now, on the one hand, we think that's instrumentally savvier or wiser than some sort of top-down, here's your blueprint, meet the goals, or go to the gulag approach, again, that the Republicans seem to want us to take. Um, We think it's instrumentally better. It's more likely to work. Um, We do actually think that two heads are better than one, so to speak, and therefore, you know, N plus one heads are are better than one head, (laughs) um, right? And, and, And so we think that's instrumentally good, but we also think that that is intrinsically right and intrinsically good because basically ownership of policy by all of those who are affected by policy is best. It's just the right thing. Otherwise, you have some people being intrinsically subordinated to others or other people being, in effect, commandeered by others or being confronted with a world that isn't of their own making but is of the making of somebody else or other people but not them. That's not good, right? If that's avoidable, it should be avoided. So the process itself by which we want to unfold and develop the Green New Deal is itself a process that we think of as being instrumentally best and intrinsically good or or right or just. Another example is one that you mentioned a moment ago, uh, and I'm so glad that you did. The job guarantee is another case in point. So I've just recently put out a piece. I've got this is soon to be published in an economic policy journal called uh, Challenge. It's one of my one of my favorite economic journals, uh, and it's called Open Market. I'm sorry, Open Labor Market Operations. And the idea is it's essentially drawing an analogy or playing on an analogy between the job guarantee idea or the employer of last resort function on the one hand. And the open market operations that the New York Fed trading desk conducts in the financial markets every day. Now, what do these two things have in common? Well, the latter, the open market operations, are basically about maintaining a steady interest rate or keeping interest rates within a narrow band by controlling the money supply, in turn by buying and selling treasury securities as a great big market actor. That's what the Fed trading desk does every day. It's it's effectively acting on behalf of the public, but the modality of its operation is out of a private entity, of a private bank. And it does this because interest rates are thought to be systemically important prices, right? It's trying to maintain an interest rate because it's so systemically consequential. Now, the article that I just referenced, on the one hand, argues or notes that, well, you know, prevailing wage rates are also systemically important, right? What people are being paid radiates throughout the entire economy. It determines what the aggregate demand of the economy is. It determines what uh, consumption demand, which is a primary component of aggregate demand, is. Uh, and it, can, it, it determines the way people live, the kind of leisure they have. It determines uh, working conditions. Uh, it, can, it also determines uh, sort of how likely people are to look for other jobs elsewhere, blah, 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 blah. So there are a million, I, I think, instrumental or sort of consequentialist or efficiency-grounded reasons to push for a job guarantee or employer of last resort function in order basically to improve the efficiency of the economy, to eliminate the kinds of volatility that come when wage rates or or salary rates either fluctuate too wildly or are are sort of uh, consistently too low. Same story, of course, as with interest rates. But here's the real key here. 
in addition to it being an efficiency-based thing, I mean, the, the sort of the efficient thing to do, it's also critically important to do the job guarantee thing because it's intrinsically the right thing to do. I'm mm -hmm. completely convinced that within 50 to 100 years from now, if not sooner, we're going to look back or kids are going to ask their parents or grandparents uh, 50 or 100 years from now, are you telling me, mommy or daddy or grandma or grandpa or, or uncle so-and-so, are you telling me that there was once a time when people actually wanted to work and wanted actually to be able to live, to earn enough to live, but couldn't do it because it just wasn't available to them? And we're going to look at that as a complete and utter scandal. It's completely absurd. It's ridiculous. It's almost as scandalous as some of the you know more conspicuous scandals of our recent past, like, of course, the fact that women couldn't vote until 19, right? I mean, until about 100 years ago, right? right. And, and, of course, like the fact that we, you know, committed genocide in this country, and like the fact that we had you know, a, a large portion of our population was once a, a population of chattel slaves owned by other human beings. That is completely, this is this is obviously not as dramatically crazy yes, as but just slavery, as moral. It's just as moral and just, yeah, yeah. And just, and just as much a choice. This is the thing I think neoliberalism, neoliberalism hides so well, just mm -hmm. as much a choice. It's both moral mm -hmm. and a choice in as much as so was chattel slavery. That's the thing mm -hmm. that neoliberalism hides the fact that it's moral and it hides the fact that it's a choice. Mm -hmm. They treat it as though it were a natural sort of structure, a natural feature of the structure of the universe. As though it were part of the, of the very firm furniture of being. And that's just completely ridiculous. Every single day is another day that we are in effect choosing or, or acquiescing in a world where it is possible for people not to have work, even though they want to work and are hardworking and are just as good as the rest of us at working. Um, Amen. That's a, that's a interesting, that's a, I might return to that, but I want, I want to go back a little bit uh, to, to, to talk about, um, you know, the, 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 uh, picture of the, uh, new deal and the green new deal as being sort of broadly beneficial. And you mentioned that there are new deal projects, uh, in, a, in every congressional district and also in Puerto Rico, there's a great map that I, um, posted the other day. Uh, actually this was like a couple of years ago, I think on Twitter, that's, there's a, there's a website that's dedicated to just a map of all of the new deal projects that are still in use, you know, the Lincoln tunnel. Yes. And uh, yeah, it's a great map. And there's, yeah, there's I know that map. tens of thousands of them all over the country, schools and oh, post yeah. offices and highways and bridges and railroad tracks. Um, but, uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, Roosevelt did, um, you know, he was engaged in, in a pretty savage class politics, you know, and it was, a you know, in, in the way that he, uh, campaigned and in the way that his, you know, like his tax policy was designed in a, you know, uh, had a, a big soak the rich uh, tax bill in 1935. And then in during the war, you know, taxes went up and even more. And, um, you know, so there were some losers, at least in terms of like direct monetary, uh, you know, uh, flows. Um, and I think maybe, you know, similarly with the Green New Deal, you could say, well, you know, we're going to make the economy more egalitarian. Like that's uh, going to mean, you know, relative status will change. Uh, maybe taxes will go up a bit. Um, but uh, maybe more specifically, um, you know, oil companies and coal companies are going to be like going to go out of business. Right. So, um what what's your view on the kind of the, the, the class conflict angle here? 
Yeah, so a couple things on this. Um, so on, let's start with the last uh, observation first, right, about particular industries or firms um, that, that you suggested might, might go out of business. Um, we're not actually convinced that that's right if we do this in the right way. And here's what I mean by that. The, the basic strategy, the sort of the DNA of the, of the strategy that, that most of us, I think, have sort of signed onto or adopted, uh, in its very essence, or it, it sort of boiled down to a kind of almost like a simple slogan, is that we're really about increasing optionality. We're really about basically making it possible and cost effective for people actually to choose alternatives to simply burning stuff like we've done since we lived in caves when we want to sort of power ourselves, right? Now, note that that means not only that you don't have to prohibit anything, you don't have to ban anything, you don't even have to tax stuff necessarily. Um, it also means that many of those who are currently profiting in carbon-producing or carbon-emitting industries could themselves transition over to other less environmentally damaging technologies or, or modalities, right? Now, you know, if there's any kind of company in the world right now that has, you know, massive uh, retained earnings and, and, and massive resources at its disposal to begin to invest in a big way in other energy sources, I would think it would be those companies that exist right now that have massively benefited from the previous energy sources that were part of the previous era. So I, I can I don't see it as being ruled out by any stretch that ExxonMobil doesn't just sort of steadily make a move over toward solar or make a move over toward wind or, or, or make a move over toward geothermal or what have you. Sure, it's not going to be the same sort of opportunity as you know other opportunities where you can just sort of pull stuff out of the ground, basically rent-free, and then sell it for tons of money um, because of some sort of scarcity manufactured or otherwise. But it's still possible to profit in these other realms as witness what the Chinese are doing as witness what the Germans are doing, as witness with what India is doing. And I can't see for the life of me why those who are currently profiting, again, by the obsolete energy sources, can't be among those who are sort of first movers into the new uh, sorts of energy sources. All they need is a kind of an impetus. Indeed, some of the petro companies that exist to this very day were originally doing or using things like coal. Uh, and what happens is the U.S. military, as if I understand correctly, in the early part of the 20th century, decided to opt for petroleum because it was more usable for military purposes than was coal. And so once they started making contracts saying, okay, look, we need to be able to use petroleum instead of coal, a lot of companies that had been into coal were just made the shift over to petroleum. I don't see why a national mobilization on a similar scale, if not, or at, indeed a grander scale now, then that one I just referenced wouldn't bring lots of existing companies who work in some energy spaces into these new energy spaces. So that would be the first part of the answer, I guess, to the sort of second part of your question. Um, the second part of my answer to the first part of your question having to do um, with class more generally and with Roosevelt's uh, sort of uh, struggle with or, or sort of grappling um, with those the, the other sort of patricians in his class um, a couple things I can say about that, too. Um, of course, as you know, Roosevelt at the time in his day was referred to by, by those uh, sort of rentier, the rentier class as 
a traitor to his class, right? (laughs) Um, I think that's part of what prompted him to engage in a kind of quote-unquote class warfare. I think he was actually responding uh, to attacks rather than launching them. This is sort of, this reminds me of today too, right? Anytime you talk about raising marginal tax rates or raising capital gains taxes or inheritance taxes or whatever, you get accused of engaging in class warfare. But the funny thing is what you're really being accused of is fighting back because the war has actually been launched by the other side and has been underway for some decades. And as I think it was, uh, was it um, uh, Warren Buffett who said, it's already underway and my class is winning it. So it, it, right. they sort of they sort of remind me of that. There was a villain I remember. I was, of course, a reprobate uh, juvenile delinquent watching stupid cartoons when I was a kid. <laughs> and I remember watching some of those speed racer cartoons that had been imported here from Japan and shown on some television stations. And, and I remember there was a villain one time who was sort of, you know, battling with speed racer, you know, villains always had the same, you know, nasty voice. And I still remember one of these villains saying, Hey, that's no fair. You fight back. And when he was trying to, you know, when they were trying to you know beat up speed racer and he used karate on them or something. And, but I mean, it, this is sort of what, this is effectively what the class war charge warfare charge, I think from those people really amounts to, but you know, again, all of that being said, um, I don't know yet that it's necessary to raise taxes in some great big way on these people. It really depends on what happens once we begin spending in a big way in the way that we have to do. And here's what I mean by that, or here's why I say that. Um, as you know, right, during the Bush years, during the Bush two uh, years, we spent approximately 3 to $5 trillion on unproductive wars and on tax cuts, right? Giant tax cut in 2001, Iraq, you know, um, uh, Afghan war launched in late 2001, uh, Iraq war launched in 2003, and we spent trillions on that stuff. Never did it spark any inflation problem to speak of. Next, of course, the Trump uh, tax cut and or Republican congressional tax cut uh, of December of 2017, another $2 trillion, still no significant inflation to speak of. Moreover, for 10 years or more informally, and for seven, six or seven years formally, the Fed has actually been trying to reach a 2% inflation rate from the bottom, from below, and only in a few quarters out of the last decade have they managed to get that. Finally, furthermore, to, I, I promise I'll get to the point in a second, but a, a final bit of data to, to adduce here, um, there is virtually no spread between so-called inflation-protected uh, treasury securities on the one hand and non-inflation-protected treasury securities on the other. That tells me that there is not a looming inflation problem, and indeed we haven't had inflation to speak of in consumer goods markets since the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s. Okay, Now, why is that relevant here? The reason that's relevant here is that the reason that you raise taxes during times of heavy government expenditure is basically to offset potential inflationary impact that can be generated by federal spending when it's big. But that is the only reason you really end up having to tax. You don't have to tax before you can spend money. In order to prove that point, all you have to do is pull a dollar bill out of your pocket and read what it says across the top. It says Federal Reserve Note. These things are issued by the Fed. And indeed, most dollars issued by the Fed aren't issued in paper form at all. They're issued in the form of keystroke credits credited to banking institutions. Okay, So, you know, we don't have to, you know, raise our own money from the citizenry in order to spend it. We actually, the government itself, our collective agent, generates that money 
The reason you end up taxing in some cases is, again, to offset the inflationary impact that, quote-unquote, simply printing money and spending can generate, but which it shows absolutely no sign of generating at this point and hasn't ever since the crash of 2008, notwithstanding all sorts of attempts on the part of the Fed and the federal government more generally to try to generate some inflation just to get economic growth going again. So my thought here then is that, yeah, if inflation at some point emerges, and again, there's no sign that it will, but and, and again, even after trillions of dollars of wasteful expenditure by the Bush administration that wasn't productive, that didn't add any capacity to the economy. There's no sign of any of that. But if there were to be a sign, that would be the point at which to start thinking about levying taxes in order to quote-unquote pay for, but what would be better put as in order to offset any inflationary impact of that uh, spending. Final point here. Um, None of this is to say that we shouldn't be taxing wealthier people or wealthier entities for other reasons. And I happen to believe that we should. I simply think that those reasons are distinct from their their orthogonal to anything having to do with the Green New Deal. So, for example, when a family is able to transmit its wealth from generation to generation so that you have generation after generation of layabouts and do-nothings, like Donald Trump, for example, (laughs) who end up being, you know, quote-unquote billionaires – through no effort of their own, no virtue of their own, no you know sort of savvy activity of their own. Simply, they have inherited it, and then they can use that money to buy politicians or to buy political office or to buy policy, to basically to procure the government that they want or the policies that they want. That in itself is a good reason to tax some of that crap away, right? Furthermore, when massive, when absolutely massive gulfs exist, between really poor folk, as the congresswoman said, people who are still getting ringwormed out in Alabama and can't get medical help for it on the one hand, and billionaires on the other hand. That is a profoundly immoral spread in itself, which ought to be diminished by tax policy, it seems to me. Uh, and then finally, thirdly, you know, these people who have billions of dollars are not investing it in the real economy, nor are they using it to consume, because once you own 25 yachts, Let's just face it, a 26th yacht is not that attractive to you. The marginal utility has diminished. It's pretty much nil at this point. So what do you do with that kind of money when you have it? Well, two possibilities. One would be to invest it in companies that are actually producing stuff, but that does no good because the companies aren't going to produce stuff when everybody else in the country is poor and can't buy the stuff. Why would you produce it if nobody can buy it? So what's the other alternative? You put it in the financial markets. You go out there and you buy various newfangled financial instruments that are constantly being invented and reinvented in order to service this particular market of billionaires who have nothing else to spend their money on. And that generates financial volatility. That's what the junk bonds of the 1980s were, new quote-unquote financial innovations that were of interest to rich people who had maxed out on their consumption. That's what the subprime mortgage loans were in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Again, catering to people who had lots of money and didn't know how to spend it all. Um, in other words, you get financial volatility when you've got that kind of massive disparity. Indeed, I've written about this and empirically demonstrated it with all sorts of numbers. So that in itself is yet another reason to think about taxing uh, the wealthy. But again, all of those reasons I think are completely compelling, and that's one reason I'm in favor of all of that and indeed have pushed for it for a long time. But I'm always very keen to keep it at the same time analytically distinct from the Green New Deal, because it's not necessary to do these things in order to, quote-unquote, pay for the Green New Deal. 
the only connection these things have to the Green New Deal at all is if and only if the Green New Deal generates inflation. And there's no reason at this point to think that it will. That, that's right. No, I, and I want to just on, on that latter point, which I think is very important, uh, because I, I'm actually I don't know about Ryan. I'm less interested in in. I think I think it's absolutely true that there's a, a misunderstanding about how much something would cost when what you're doing is uh, with the Green New Deal actually producing so much output. And there's there's a number of reasons why there's there's misconceptions about that that, that it would be costly or you need to raise taxes. I think all of that is is, is uh, you know widely misunderstood. But but more importantly and, and somewhat connected to the earlier question I had is that. Um, to your latter point, there are some things that in the vision need to be conveyed about the nature of prioritizing the democracy and the demos uh, over and aboard, you know, above and uh, beyond the, the market. You know, the market should serve the democracy, not vice versa. So, for example, if industries like private health insurance, right, are commoditizing something that should not be commoditized, right, um, like these public goods, uh, then that's bad. And, and like you said, if, if, if Exxon, Mobil, they get on board and they don't do to the environment what private insurance does to the human body, great. They can, they can be part of it. But the point is that the demos should determine uh, what does or does not get produced and to what end, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, the, yeah, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's important to convey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're. I, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, that, that that couldn't be more true, and it couldn't be more under discussed or under noted. Right, it seems to right. me. At least when you read, um, you know, not only mainstream media but but even non-mainstream media, oftentimes still either implicitly or, you know, sort of insufficiently explicitly um, uh, sort of assumes, right, that there is some kind of naturalness to the economic order and that somehow or another we have to sort of accommodate ourselves to it or bend ourselves to it or bend our wills to it. And that's just, again, false. It's it's true that you can't, you know, make something out of nothing all the time. Uh, although, you know, promises are in a certain sense generated out of nothing. But I mean, I, I, I understand that, you know, you can't just create out of, you know, ex nihilo uh, material resources and that there are resource constraints on what human beings can do, whether they be acting collectively or individually. All of that is obviously true and trivially true. But none of that entails this kind of strange assumption that many people seem to make that somehow or another, you know, the market determines stuff and we just do the best we can to kind of live with that natural truth. Um, the market, as you know, as, as everybody understands who thinks about it a bit, is deeply embedded within the demos. The demos deter, it's, it's simply a, an allocation mechanism. It's an allocation mechanism at the, at the sort of front end or productive end. It, in other words, allocates resources that go into productive activity. And then it's an allocation mechanism or a distribution mechanism for what gets produced, right? And, you know, in some, for some purposes and in some respects, it can work well as an allocation and distribution mechanism for ultimately productive purposes. And in other ways and in other cases, it doesn't work well at all when it comes to doing that. And indeed, oftentimes it's profoundly dysfunctional or it's profoundly immoral because it can be commoditizing things that we understand should not be commoditized, like human beings or like babies or like wives and husbands and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a useful corrective and a useful reminder. Uh, I, I think we almost can't say too often at this point, just given how rare understanding of this point has been in recent decades, 
that this is all something that we construct. This is all, a, a, basically mm -hmm. the market is a technology mm -hmm. and there's no reason we can't fine tune the technology or even just outright replace it for some purposes in some contexts when it looks like the results would be better if we were to do so. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, uh, you know, I always love to get a little Carl Polanyi in there. Um, but I, <laughs> yeah. that's right. I won't, I, um, I want to maybe shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, we, we, you talk about the, you know, Green New Deal, like the New Deal, you know, focus on, you know, transforming the U.S. national infrastructure, national political economy to a zero carbon foundation. But, you know, folks point out quite rightly that the U.S. is only like 15% of, of uh, carbon dioxide emissions now. Uh, China, you know, as you say, is is the sort of renewable powerhouse in terms of like exporting solar panels and stuff. But at the same time, they emit more than twice as much um, carbon dioxide as us. And, um, you know, and then there's India, which is like still, you know, sort of on the on the uh, rapid growth curve, uh, you know, maybe 20 years behind China or something like that. And, um, you know, if if they go the way China went. Um, given that they will almost certainly be the biggest country in the world in a in a couple of years, um, like that's kind of game over for for the climate. How how do you view this in an international context in terms of you know maybe seeding uh, zero carbon agriculture, encouraging vegetarianism, or or just I don't know international diplomacy? Um, how how should we how 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 should the Green New, New Deal be situated in an international context? So I think um, there are several several things to say in response. And I, again, thanks for that, Ryan. That's a, a very important question as well. Uh, and I, I actually forgot. I didn't even, I forgot sort of spontaneously to mention it myself. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's definitely on my mind as well. And so I'm, I'm so glad that you've asked. Uh, I think a, a few things that, that, that can be said about that right away, right? So the, the first is the sooner that we develop means of going carbon neutral and of, uh, of, of, supplying our power needs uh, in environmentally friendly ways. The sooner that we get really good at doing that and can scale it up in a way that renders it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, the better, partly for this very reason, right? So, you know, as, as we know, right, with respect to many other previous technologies that have been developed, you know, once you get to third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, whatever generation of any particular new technology, it gets cheaper. It gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And part of the process of making it get cheaper is, A, developing it further and further and further, and B, scaling it, right? Because the fixed costs that go into research and development and then into production diminish as a portion of total costs, right, as you scale up. So ultimately, the idea behind the Green New Deal as I, this sort of dovetails with the, the broadening the menu of optionality idea that I mentioned before. If the idea is to make cost effective what has not hitherto been as cost effective as it could be, well, this carries over then directly to the global sphere as well. Because if it becomes once it becomes more cost effective for us, uh, you know, even to the point where people voluntarily move over to using it instead of the carbon stuff simply because it's cheaper at the same time that it's cleaner. Well, then the next stage of scaling up from there is to go global, right? If you're actually producing and selling this stuff 
in quantities that are meant to sort of serve as 7 billion people rather than 340 million people. I think that's roughly what our population is now in the States. Then, you know, so much the better, right? The, the, the per unit cost gets even cheaper. Relatedly, you know, if worst came to worst, if push came to shove, if it was a matter of saving the planet, we could even begin donating some of this technology to places, right? I mean, just start spreading it out broadly just in order to save the planet. It's like, please, can you please use this vape cigarette instead of this non-vape cigarette so that you're not smoking up the atmosphere when you smoke? You know, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people would do that if it were cost-effective or cheap to do it. And I'd love, you know, I think most of us would love to see things scaled up to the point where it's actually economical to do that, where people can, you know, kind of, Hand out, you know, hand out free solar panels in the same way that you know they they virtually hand out you know sort of free um, little sort of USB th- little you know sort of uh, plugs for your for your, for your mobile phone in your car at this point you know so um, that's a, a sort of a second related point uh, a third uh, and related point I think is that you know most of the rest of the world is already trying to do this anyway right now China understands or the Chinese government understands that its environment is an absolute disaster and its citizenry understands this as well and there have been really significant and, and from the from the Chinese government's point of view ominous uprisings not only in the countryside but even you know in the outskirts of cities and in the in sort of in, in on actual in factory uh, on factory premises and the like of citizens or of people who are just sick of basically choking to death or watching their their loved ones walk around with black lung disease so they're actually trying very hard to make themselves cleaner as well that's part of why they are making such a big move into green energies to the point where they've actually leapfrogged way beyond us and so i think that to some extent the problems of chinese and indian emissions will sort of take care of themselves Fourthly, the other thing that's you know, maybe fourth and fifth, two kind of, again, related points, but the two of them are together, especially closely related. I think the world does continue to look to the U.S. as a kind of example when it comes to sort of, you know, leadership or, or sort of what model to follow or what model to emulate. And if people see us just continuing to belch filth into the air and into the water, they think, well, it can't be that bad. This most modern and rich country in the world is doing it. Or they think, well, why should we bother when you know they have this this sort of sociopathic president who's you know continuing <laughs> to belch filth in the world? You know, why should we? And, and why should we? You know, so there's this kind of I think there is a kind of a lead by example uh, role here. I don't want to overplay that because there's much more to the you know as, as the previous three parts of my answer have indicated. I think there's much more than just what kind of leadership we provide. But I do think, nevertheless, that the leadership that we provide or don't provide is a non-trivial factor here as well. It's not something to be overlooked or sneezed at or downplayed. Um, And then finally, fifthly, and closely related to that, there is just the basic matter of justice, right? And and there's sort sort of two parts to the justice question here. First, the overwhelming majority at this, still, the overwhelmingly greater part at this point of the filth that's already out there is filth we put there, right? I mean, that's what we did. And I'm not trying to demonize us for it. At the time, that what you know, the, 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 the modes of powering that we used in the, in the 19th and early 20th century, actually throughout the 20th century, were by and large state-of-the-art at the time, right? We used what there was, and we, we kept modernizing our modes of energy provision, 
over the decades. It's just that up into the 20th century, the most modern, the most cost-effective modes continue to be these carbon-based modes. But they aren't anymore, and therefore we ought to move to the newer ones, and we ought to recognize the role that we played in basically putting out there all of the crap that's already out there as a result of our own early industrialization. And it would be a bit much for us to say to other countries that are modernizing or industrializing later than we did, well, you know, you can't industrialize as fast as we did because you're not going to be allowed to use the energy source that we did. What we ought to do rather than, you know, trying to play that game is to say, well, look, you know, the earth could take it when we were using that energy. And furthermore, we didn't have any alternatives and we didn't know what the consequences would be back then. We know now. So can we please talk you into going more green in your own modernization? And here's what we'll do to help you do it so that you don't have to undergo or face more hardship in modernizing than we did when we were using in the past the same energy sources that we're now contemplating telling you not to use. So you combine that point, right? You combine our the, the American role in the world in the past and in uh, uh, emitting carbon into the atmosphere and into the world, you know, polluting the water uh, and, and so forth. You combine that with the fact that we continue to be a kind of a looked at as a kind of a leader and as an example in the world, and we tend to be followed for better or worse. And that, to me, spells our actually taking a very active but helpful and facilitative role in greening the world as we green ourselves. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And and from now on and eternally, I will think of Trump in the same uh, sentence as belching filth. That just seems... That, that seems to go together quite perfectly, uh, just all the time. Um, but, but in, a, in addition to that, though, th- there is something about the left on offer here, both domestically and internationally. It seems to me, um, in line with what you're saying, which is first, our our country needs to understand uh, itself more collectively and, and interconnectedly, and as uh, having shared, like the common good, is something that's shared, and 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 I think that's the first step. The next step then is to see that our, our fellow human beings around the world are part of that same collective. And, 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 and that is hopefully we, if, as we move away from the friend enemy distinction that the Trump alt-right proto fascists, right. Um, you know, right. Like we want to move the other way to more interconnectivity and trying to show others that we care about their well-being as well. And we're willing to sacrifice uh, insofar as we want them to be part of the collective with us. Right. So that's a, I think that's a beautiful vision. Yeah, I think no. I think you're exactly right, Ryan. I mean, I, or was, was that Alexi? I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's. I think that's exactly right. I, I think that um, you know, I, I I don't I don't mean to be like ridiculously starry eyed um, in, in the sense that, but sure, there are there are there have been bad leaders of of countries in the past. There have there have been Hitlers and there have been Idi Amin's and and sure, we can't just be all sort of airy fairy with. With evil, but but the thing is, we've 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 projected so much evil onto people, you know, sort of assuming them to be evil when they're not, and we ourselves have been so evil, oftentimes intentionally or otherwise, you know, either intentionally or unknowingly, mm. that I think it would be much better to kind of change the presumption from what it has been 
and basically try to make the presumption that which I think most people of goodwill actually make when they meet other people, when they meet new people. So I'm guessing that I'm completely ununique in this. I'm betting that I'm completely mundane in this, and I'm just like you guys in this. When I meet somebody, I just assume that they are good, decent people acting in good faith and that they have, they have, you know, sort of bounded understanding and bounded rationality just like I have. So sure, they can make mistakes, but they basically mean well. And until something pretty dramatic proves that that assumption was wrong, I continue to maintain it. So it's like a sort of rebuttable presumption, but I'm not like constantly looking for rebuttals to the presumption. I'm waiting for something dramatic. Now, it seems to me it wouldn't be a bad idea. I can't see anything wrong with a nation state sort of, in effect, adopting the kind of nation state counterpart or equivalent of that posture toward mm. other nation states and toward just other peoples more generally. Just assume the best of them unless something is truly proven other, unless it's unless proven otherwise. And, you know, basically act on that presumption. It doesn't mean, you know, sort of just expose yourself so that you can be destroyed when you're not looking or something. But it does mean, you know, assume that people kind of all want to live and that they would actually like the planet to continue to survive. And they would rather not burn to death or be drowned by new floods or by, you know, blown away by new, new tornadoes or cyclones and stuff. And that they're basically willing to cooperate in coming up with global solutions to the problems. And I think, you'll, you know, I think we get a lot farther than we've done in recent decades. I mean, you know, I, I think, I know, I can't even think of a time, certainly not, I can't think of a time in my lifetime when this country actually acted on that presumption, right? I mean, people sometimes say, well, Jimmy Carter tried to be an idealist, have an idealistic foreign policy, and look where that got him. But I just don't even think that's true. I don't. I mean, Jimmy Carter was, yeah, sure, less sociopathic than uh, some other leaders. <laughs> and, and sure, American foreign policy under Jimmy Carter was in some ways less maybe dramatically or blatantly sociopathic uh, than it was uh, under other leaders. But, you know, it was still America. I mean, you look at, you know, what happened, and I've read... I've read at least a little bit about the Iranian Revolution in 1979, and and the role that America, I mean, the, the role that America's role in Iran back in the 1950s played, uh, and, and and of course ever after the 50s played in generating that revolution in 1979. And you would have thought, right, against that backdrop, that a truly idealistic U.S. president in the late 1970s would have responded in a way that kind of acknowledged. America's role in having fomented the kind of uh, violent reaction against uh, the, the Shah's oppressions that finally occurred in the late 70s. And, and this is that's a detour, of course, but my point is that even then, that even under the so-called, you know, ridiculously sort of starry-eyed idealistic foreign policy of Jimmy Carter that supposedly failed, I don't think, I mean, we were still basically a neo-imperial power and, and Carter was essentially a neo-imperial president who met well, but I don't think was fully aware of just how dirty our hands were. And so he didn't act as, as, as forcefully to clean them as it seems he should have done. And I would mm. love, right, I would love to see a new foreign policy finally adopted in this country where we try to, you know, clean our hands a bit and kind of cleanse ourselves a little bit about, of, of, the, of the wrongs that we've done and really try to be a force for good, unambiguous good. You know, whereas now it's not that we're only a force for evil, of course, but it's a decidedly mixed bag, and a lot of the bad that we've done is pretty bloody conspicuous and pretty pretty bloody salient, and actually just plain old pretty bloody, you know. So I don't right. see why we can't, you know, make a national project of reversing that too and being good global citizens for once. 
That's a, that's a beautiful vision, Robert. And, and I think it's, it's bound up with the idea that if the, if the demos reinvigorates itself, right? Like if, if, if the polis, right. And I'm, I'm Greek. So I, I like to, to, to oh, go yeah. back to these things, demos, right? So polis, those are all yours. Those are all your words. All my, yeah. Well, and, 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 and of course the, the root of the English word idiot means a private person who's not concerned with the public good. Right. Exactly. So an idiot is somebody, right. And, like and the so village idiot, it, the village yeah, idiot, so, like well, and, kind of and, lives outside of the village and doesn't take part in anything. Indeed. Right? And, and capitalism creates the incentives and the structures that pressure everyone to be concerned only with their own household, right? So like, if we can change that and flip that, then we could control, right, the kind of nation we could be and the character it has. And we really could uh, be a force for good in the world. It's, it's really in our hands. And that, you know, so, so this is the Green New Deal, to bring it back to that, is the kind of initiative that would, I hope, uh, effectively reinvigorate the, the people in the demos to, to kind of take their public role again and really um, seize back the, the power in shaping our destiny and our force and influence on the world. So that's that's a beautiful thing. Hey folks, Ryan here. Um, this interview went long, so we're going to split it up into two episodes. So stay tuned for the second half. Um, well, we'll be uh, continuing our discussion of the Green New Deal and uh, you know the, the broader uh, underlying politics generally. Uh, talk to you soon.